Blessed Lord, we give you thanks for the hope of the resurrection, the life of the world to come, and how you have the victory over death and the grave, a victory that is ours by faith in your Son, Jesus. Bless us uh, today and throughout the study. Kindle in our hearts a greater hope in all that you will yet accomplish. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So how does hope, or the lack of hope, affect somebody's day-to-day life? Is hope something that is just pie-in-the-sky type stuff? It doesn't really you know, affect your day-to-day life? Or does hope have an impact? And if so, what is it? How does it impact somebody's day-to-day life? What do you think? Hugely. Hugely, okay. How so? so well, if you don't have any hope and you're in despair, yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I think the word despair is connected with the same root word as, as hope, and it literally means to be hopeless, so that if you're despairing, you're, you're without hope. Sure, good. Well, yeah, Esther. If you have hope, uh, you know, you're not bogged down with the events that are going on in the immediate now, okay. and, and, you know, because you know this, is, this too will pass, Good. we got, we got a great future to look forward to. Sure. So hope is a kind of a bulwark against present circumstances. Yeah, very good. Other thoughts? How hope impacts your day-to-day life. Yeah. Well, the hope we have isn't a wish. Correct, yes, not it's a wish. Unlike a now. It's yeah. a, a sure thing. Yes. And that we look for, that we are certain about. Yes. We have a certain hope. That, this is a great point, Sally. It says we have a certain hope. There's a, a wonderful line in the funeral liturgy. Uh, where we commit the deceased uh, to the ground in the sure and certain hope of the resurrection of the body. And uh, N.T. Wright quips in his book, he says, nowadays people have a vague and ambiguous optimism, right, in things that they are uncertain about. And what we have is not just some vague, wishy-washy, like, I don't know, maybe something's going to happen, but instead we have a sure and certain hope. Uh, it says in Hebrews that it's a steadfast anchor to the soul. Yeah, good. Um, so what are some of the sources of hope that people will cling to in our world today, apart from Christian faith? What are other places that people will look to for some measure modicum of, of hope or things to look forward to? Money. Okay, money. And uh, if I have money or have the, the hope of more money, then okay, yeah, sure. What else? Parents and family. Parents, family. Um, the, the, of being a parent, you mean, or yes. on, on hopes for your children and so forth? Sure. Many people look to the government. Okay, people. Disaster. Yeah, people look to the government. Yeah, I hope that they will that they will bail me out. That they will. Food, water. Sure. Right. Exactly. Saw so hand was it Esther. Yeah. Some new charismatic leader that will yep. offer us. So to speak, the moon. Yeah, right, exactly. So wait for that, that one silver bullet leader who's going to come along and fix everything. Spoiler alert, we had him already. His name is Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> put not your trust in the Son of Man, uh, apart from the Son of Man. Yes. So um, good. Other things that people put their, their hope in? Yeah. Accomplishments? Accomplishments. A, a degree or your, yep. your health, your sure. Yep. Yeah, exactly. That will change everything. Will change everything. Yep. Some accomplishment that, that I will do, that's going to that's gonna do it. Or I think of, um, you know, for uh, sports fans, 
there's always the hope of next year. Every season, every year, you know, for Lions fans, I, no, it's despair. It's only despair for Lions fans, yes. But for Tigers fans, there is hope. Maybe next year. Yeah, Caleb. That used to be for the Cubs, too. For the Cubs. And then they won. Yeah. And they're still no more happy than they were before. Yeah. Right. So actually, they're a lot happier. Oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> Usually these things don't satisfy, but in that case. Yeah. Probably a knowledge, you know, whether it's yeah. you know, intellectual knowledge, uh, right. science, or whatever, just knowing more. Yeah, just knowing more. That's going to get us over the hump. So many things that people will put their hope and confidence in. In this first video, um, N.T. Wright's going to talk about our hope that we have, but also the hope for the world, not just for us as individuals, but um, the hope for the world and God's plan. So... Um, if you have trouble hearing, I'll turn up as loud as I can, but if any of you are in the back, you have trouble hearing, you might need to um, come a little bit closer. There's no, um, uh, let's see, it has a caption. Auto-generated, do I dare? No. I'll try it. <laughs> All right. Music. Here at Auckland Castle, the bishops of Durham have had their principal residence for nearly 900 years. It's a remarkable place and full of history and culture and memories. A lot of these buildings are themselves signs of faith and signs of hope. They've been through some rough times and often bishops have had to rebuild bits and this great chapel here is one of those. And when the bishops have lived here, they have used this place as a place of hope for the whole community. Many bishops of Durham have had to live that message right here in the middle of what has often been a very difficult part of the country. I think back to some of my predecessors, famously a man called Bishop Westcott about 110 years ago, who called together the miners' leaders and the miners themselves when there was a terrible strike and people were starving in the streets. And he worked with them and he prayed with them and he negotiated with them and eventually he persuaded the owners of the mines to come down to the level that the miners knew that they could live with. And he was a great hero here because he was a man of hope. And even though that was 110 years ago, there's still a lot of need for hope in this area. If I walk around not far from here, there are all the signs of a countryside and towns in real decline because the traditional industries have gone. There's no more mining here. There's no shipbuilding where they used to be down on the coast. There's no steel being made anymore. There's all sorts of things that used to happen here that used to bring prosperity to the region that have disappeared. And as a result, there's a lot of unemployment, there's a lot of drug abuse, there's a lot of all the attendant social problems that go with that kind of situation. And in the middle of all of that, the church has, of course, always had the calling to live and speak the message not only of faith and of love, of course, but also of hope. But when Christians talk about hope, there's a lot of confusion. If you ask an average Christian, what is the Christian hope? They'll probably say, oh, it's about going to heaven. Or maybe they'll say, it's to do with resurrection. And then they'll scratch their heads and say, wait a minute, what exactly is resurrection? And where exactly is heaven? What are we talking about? Can we actually believe that stuff? And even if we do say we believe in heaven or resurrection, what on earth, and I mean on earth, has that got to do with real hope in God's real world now? 
So in the six sessions that we're going to have together, I'm going to be looking at these big ideas, heaven and resurrection, and particularly the mission of the church to bring hope to real people in the real present. We're going to be studying these themes together with the Bible open in front of us and with all sorts of possibilities, because we need hope here. Most people around the world now know that they need hope, and it's time to be surprised by it once again. to the video on your handout too so just if you want to take notes along the way there's kind of a, there's a little bit of an outline It isn't only one or two local places here in the northeast of England that have reason to ask, is there any such thing as hope? Over the last few years, we've seen all kinds of things going horribly wrong in our world. We've seen major floods, disasters, famines, wars. We've had huge economic crises, the like of which we never imagined in the Western world and its banking system. We in the UK have had all sorts of political crises where suddenly nobody trusts anybody anymore and so on and so on. And then on top of all of that, we've had really major uh, international and national disasters. Of course, September the 11th, uh, we all know about that, but also that extraordinary tsunami that ripped through the Indian Ocean not that long ago, and then huge earthquakes and so on. And for many people who are brought up in a reasonably comfortable environment, uh, thinking that life can trundle along okay and that nasty things happen to one or two people elsewhere, suddenly the question comes, is there actually any hope? Are we just whistling in the dark? Is there just nothing whatever to hope for? Now at this point, some Christians go one way and some go another way, but there are two particular ways in which lots of mistakes occur. Some Christians are inclined to say, well, you know, we have this book called the Bible, and it's really a secret code to give you a clue as to how it's all going to pan out. And if only you can decode it, you'll find that there are references to um, the rise of Russia, say, in the last generation, or the rise even of the European Union in more recent times, and many other national and international events. And some people say, they're actually here in the Bible, and if only we knew the code, we could figure out where it's all going, and then we would be able to have hope. Now, I agree with most other people in mainstream Christianity and mainstream scholarship that that's just not the way to read the Bible. There are other people who will say, well, when we read the Bible, we see that there's a hope which is for going away from this world altogether and off to a wonderful place called heaven. And we're just going to leave this wicked old world behind. So who cares about economic crises? Who cares if we don't have a job? Who cares if there are tsunamis? We're going to die sooner or later, so it might as well be sooner if we're going to a better place than this. And they claim often to find this in the Bible itself. Now, of course, the Bible does tell us about many dimensions to human life, to the life of this world, and warns us against thinking that the present world that we can touch and see and measure is all that there is. 
But the Bible doesn't say that in order to say that this present world is just a waste of space and time and that we're going off somewhere else entirely. The Bible has a very different vision. Some of my favorite poems in all the world are the poems we call the Psalms, sitting there in the middle of the Old Testament in the Bible. And some of my favorite Psalms are the ones which talk about what God is promising to do one day. And it doesn't say God is going to throw this world into the trash can. It says rather things like this. The field is going to exult and everything in it, the sea will roar and all that fills it. All the trees in the forest will sing for joy before the Lord because he is coming to judge the earth with righteousness and truth. Now, again, some people go wrong when they hear that word judge. And they think that that means God is going to get really angry with the world and is going to burn it up and fry it or throw it away. But for the Hebrews writing the Old Testament, the word judge was a good thing. Imagine somebody who has been badly wronged. Classically in the Bible, we read stories about elderly people and widows who have had all their rights taken away from them, who've been bullied and oppressed and robbed. And they go to court and they say, I need justice. I need somebody to vindicate me. And eventually, if the judge is doing his job, the judge will say, I find in favor of this woman, her rights are upheld, she has her property restored to her. Now that lady is going to go out of court and celebrate and have a party because judgment has been done according to truth and righteousness. And that's what it's going to be like for the whole world. And the great story of the Bible from beginning to end is, a st is the story of God making a wonderful world, a world which then somehow, it's hard to tell how, really does go badly wrong, but of God's promise to sort it all out one day. And you can take a line straight across from Psalms like that through passages like the book of Isaiah, which is full of great statements about God's purposes for the whole creation, for the wolf to lie down with the lamb, for the whole creation to be put back straight again, for things like the thorns and thistles in the garden to be replaced with lovely flowering shrubs. And then you can go across from those Old Testament passages to the very end of the New Testament, where the last scene in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, is not about people leaving earth and going upstairs to a place called heaven, but rather about the heavenly city coming down to be here on earth so that heaven and earth are joined together. That is the great hope which is put before us right through the whole Bible. And actually, it's something which is there if only we knew how to read them in the Gospels themselves, in Matthew, Mark and Luke and John. Because Jesus, when he's teaching in Matthew, Mark, Luke and John, is not teaching us how to leave this world and go somewhere else. He taught us to pray, after all, thy kingdom come on earth as in heaven. And you know, he went about doing it. One of the things that's most fascinating to me in the Gospels is that Jesus isn't just a teacher teaching people great truths, so he did that as well. He went around doing stuff. And when people said, why are you doing this? Why are you having a party with all these down and out, no good people? Why are you going around healing people at the wrong time of the week? Why are you going around um, doing crazy things like walking on water or feeding people apparently with next to nothing? Jesus talked about God's kingdom. And God's kingdom is 
such a complicated idea to us because the word kingdom has all sorts of resonances in our world, which it never had in the first century. What it meant is basically this. Jesus was saying, what do you think it would look like if God was running this show? And then he said, it might look like this, it might look like that. And then he told stories, it would like, be like a farmer going out and sowing seed and it would grow up and some of it would produce 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold and you wouldn't really know why, even while others didn't seem to work at all. Or he said it's like a man who had two sons and one of them went away and got in disgrace and then when he came crawling back, the father ran down the road to meet him. That's what God's kingdom is like. That's what it looks like when God is running the show. So when you transpose that into a cosmic dimension, into a global dimension, say, supposing God was really running this whole world, all sorts of things would get sorted out. Jesus began to sort them out. He promised, echoing those great promises in the Psalms and elsewhere in the Old Testament, that one day God would finish the job of sorting them out. And in between, he told us to live as people of hope, people who have that hope ourselves set before us, but people who then live by that hope and make that hope happen in the world. Now, in a sense, that's what we're going to be talking about throughout these sessions. But let me just develop it a little bit more as we draw this one to a close. We live in a very confusing world. And when we read the New Testament, we should take comfort from it because it was pretty confusing for them as well. When they went out in the book of Acts, they found all kinds of things waiting for them, which they didn't expect. People didn't say, oh, wonderful, yes, kingdom of God, let's have some of that, please. The powers of the world, both the Jewish leaders and the pagan leaders, were really shocked because if God was becoming king in a new way like this, it meant that their way of running the world was actually being called to account. And so the early Christians found very soon that they had to make choices. Do we have to obey God or do we have to obey the human authorities? And bless them, they went again and again with hope. That is to say, they believed that if they really did obey God and announce and put his kingdom into operation, then ultimately the human authorities could rage and bluster and be pretty unpleasant to them, and they were pretty unpleasant to them. But actually, God's good news of hope was going to win out, both in the hearts and lives of individual men and women, and in actual communities. And so as we read Paul's letters, for instance, we see him again and again talking about hope. He says in one wonderful passage where he's drawing together the threads of the whole letter to the Romans, he says, may the God of hope fill you with joy and peace in believing so that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And it's very interesting that that's what he chooses to say right at the end of that great long theological argument in the letter to the Romans, because he wants the people in Rome, right there under the nose of Caesar, the emperor of the day, he wants them to be people of hope. He wants them to be a community of hope. So what might it mean to be a community of hope, people of hope? That might be actually a very good definition of being church, people who gather together in order to share the hope together, but also to be people of hope for the world. There's a wonderful example of such a community not far from where I'm sitting right now. 
where there was an old school that the government decided they didn't need anymore, and the local church, somebody got a little glimmer of light in their eye and said, I know, this can be a place of real hope. And they transformed that school into a place where people with very serious physical or mental disabilities go day by day, and they are helped and trained and taught to do a whole range of skills. Some of them actually learn to do stuff on computers. Some of them do quite interesting handicraft to make beautiful things. But the one that always gives me a bit of a catch in my breath is the people who are trained to repair broken furniture. And people come to this old school and here are these people whose bodies are really quite damaged and sad. And sometimes their minds are a bit difficult as well but they have learned to repair chairs and tables and things like that. And to go to that place and see these folk from the church helping these people who would otherwise be sitting in some nursing home somewhere just watching television all day with nothing really to get them going, watching them repair furniture and send it out as good as new, that to me is a real parable of hope. It's saying these people matter. God loves them, we love them, and they too can do things despite their own condition, which are in themselves signs that things can be better, things can be made to work, things can be put right. That's what it's really like when God is in charge, when God's running the world. Despite the brokenness, despite the awfulness and the horror, there are things which can be done which really will make things better, which really will make things right. And that is the source and the secret of hope. raise for you or thoughts does that inspire anything in particular that you wrote down or that you found interesting that he, he shared go ahead Mary my very first thing is that everyone is worthwhile and we need to help them to see that yeah everyone is worthwhile mm-hmm. and I like how you put that sometimes we need to help them to see that right. because people can think oh, I'm, I don't have worth or value and yeah good thank you other, other things you took away from, from that video or questions that it raised or even pushback that you might have? Yeah, Esther. Well, if God was in charge, he'd put everything right. Yes. And yet now, even as Christians, there are things we can put right, and that's when the kingdom is advanced. Yeah, yeah. How did you like his definition of the kingdom? I mean, a very almost folksy way of, of putting it. Although I, I could listen to, you know, these British people, you know, read the phone book, if that's what. Um, but, uh, you know, this what the God's kingdom is like when what he wants to happen happens. Yeah. And then he goes into the parable of the sower, which is one of the most confusing parables. Because in, in our terms, maybe the world right. I mean, that everyone would do what we think God wants them to do. Sure. Of course, they... The, the seed does not grow up everywhere. Yeah, that's right. And it's unintelligible as to why it does and why it doesn't. Right. Which is not a more clear and understandable world. <laughs> right. 
right? So if God, God's, I mean, God's kingdom is not necessarily what we might think God's kingdom is. Yes, that's a, and that's an important point. God's kingdom doesn't necessarily look like what we think. I mean, how many of Jesus' parables are precisely this? Again and again and again. Like, Jesus' parables are not just, you know, Ben Franklin wisdom, right? Um, a, a kind of just every man, like, oh, yeah, that's good. We can all recognize it. But the parables and the, of, the, of the kingdom in particular are turning the world upside down. This is not how you would expect. Um, kind of to the point of the sermon today, Jesus says, well, the kingdom of God is like the mustard seed, which is the smallest of all the seeds. Uh, that's what the kingdom is, is like. So he's constantly reframing and um, transforming our understanding of, of what it would look like where, where God's in charge. Other questions? Okay, go ahead. I heard the always said that the people who heard this the first time, they didn't understand it either. Yeah. And so if it takes us a while, that's okay. Yes, so exactly. Yeah, we're in good company, right? Yeah, I love those passages in the Gospels where the disciples are just like, you know, what, still not getting it? Still not getting it? Yeah. Jesus, but where are the yeast of the Pharisees? And they're like, I forgot to bring the bread. And he's like, I'm not talking about bread, you guys. <laughs> oh, right, of course. So, Good. Well, I think uh, he's, he's a, a, a talented teacher, and he's bringing before us this um, notion today of, of hope and how pivotal hope is. And so I wanted to um, further our, our thoughts and reflections by um, kind of fleshing this out a little bit more. Over the course of the study, we'll get into more of the content of the hope. We'll just touch on that a little bit today. But just the, the posture of hope itself. And first of all, number one uh, on your handout under, under discussion there, we ought always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in us, right? Let's take a look at that passage, though, because Peter has yet more to say on that score. This is 1 Peter chapter 3. So notice here, Peter is writing, he addresses this at the beginning of his letter to the elect exiles. So he's writing to a church which, as we say today, is marginalized, you know, on the sidelines of society. How then, Christians, shall you respond when you find yourself um, in such a, a situation as a band of exiles? He says, I'll start with verse 13 of 1 Peter 3. Who's there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. Having a good conscience. So that, get this, when you are slandered, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Peter has said a mouthful just in this verse. First of all, start with this. He says, be prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you a reason for the hope that is in you. What's the assumption there? People are going to ask you, right? They're going to ask you, well, what, what is the source of your hope? Okay. In which case, how do we respond? Well, first of all, we'll talk about the content of how you might respond, but he says, you respond with gentleness and respect. He says, you take out your Bible, and then you just smack them in the face with it. <laughs> no, with gentleness and respect. So that, this is so important, and it's one of these verses that you read it, and you're like, oh, that actually is in the Bible. 
when, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. So Peter isn't giving this as a strategy, always, you know, how to make friends and influence people, okay? Peter is not Dale Carnegie here. He's not saying this is always going to get people onto your, onto your good side. But in fact, it may well be as you are striving to be faithful to Christ, to give reason for the hope that is in you, they're still going to slander you. They're still going to, to speak ill of you. It's not right. It's not the way that things should be. But Peter's saying when that happens, they're the ones that ultimately are going to be put to shame. It's not you, right? They're the ones who look bad. It's not for you to, to worry about. To me, that's a very liberating message. We don't have to sweat it, right? You know, haters going to hate. That's, just, that's basically what Peter's saying here. Shake it off. Um, that's that's kind of his message here. But I want to go back to this idea of when people ask for a reason for the hope that is in you. How do you respond? Somebody asks you, how are you hopeful in the midst of difficult times? What, what's, a, what's a simple way to respond, either that you have or that, that you could? What do you think? God's in control. God's in control. Good. You can go right into Revelation chapter 1. You're like, I have a vision of the Son of Man, high and exalted and as Hairs, and they're like, oh, okay, cool. Uh, but, or you could just say God's in control. Yes. Good. How else might we respond? Just an experience. Um, when my husband passed away, yeah. I had people come and say, why would God do this? Mm. And what, what I said back was, it's because of the sin in the world. If there wasn't sin, yeah. This wouldn't have happened. Right. We'd all be living forever. Sure, right. And I don't, you know, you just kind of tell them that yeah. the hope is in God. Yeah, right. That they're, that things are not the way that they're supposed right. to be. Yeah. Right. Acknowledge that and that you have a, a deeper bedrock hope. Right. Yeah. Yeah. You kind of have to find out where they are. Sure. Some people are audibly without at all. Yeah. How do you know there's a God? Right. And some people, maybe they about the Bible Find out where they are. Yeah, that's right. Build on that. Build on that. That's good. Find a common foundation. Yeah, Becky. I saw a panel of politicians being interviewed for a debate or something. They all had different faiths. And the moderator asked, you know, why is what you believe so important to you? And, yeah. and the man who claimed Christianity just said, because he changed me. Mm, yeah. I once was blind, but now I and see. That, that was it. And I yeah. thought, Bill, I guess that is it in a nutshell. Right. Way, isn't it? That's, and maybe an inquiring mind in the audience would follow up. Sure. How? Yeah. And I think that's an important point, too, that um, especially in the context of conversations you might have, and in particular, if you don't have a lot of time, you don't feel like you've got to say everything, right? Like, um, when it's in the context of relationships, like, maybe I'm just going to put something out there, that a, a teaser, that if you want to follow up and as the Spirit is working on you, you will. But not to feel like you need to, as our friend Greg Finke says, bust out the Bible fire hose, you know. Whoa! <laughs> 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 yeah, yeah, you're not going to get all. Yeah, Patty. Um, it's very, very simple thought. Yeah. We live on a lake and we see a, sin, um, a sunset every night. I cannot tell you the different sunsets that we see Uh that are just absolutely incredible. And we just look and say, 
Look at what God has done today. But I'm saying to someone else, I believe in the creative. Sure, right. Look, look to the west. See the beauty of the sunset. And then you do one of these. You're like, and every morning I look to the east and boom, the sun has risen. <laughs> Mic drop, you just walk out. <laughs> He's risen indeed. You're like, That's... So it's a creative world. Exactly, yeah. You can, the, the beauty of the world. So um, one thing that, that I learned, this is not a seminary thing. This was, I think I learned it in Bible study or confirmation class that I've always found helpful. And you touched on it. When you're just talking with somebody about reasons for, for God, just a real simple um, uh, kind of nutshell sort of thing you can do. This is not going to get you necessarily right to the gospel, but just in talking about God in general. Three C's, okay? So the first one is creation, what, what Patty was saying. We see God's glory in, in creation. And Romans 1 talks about this. You can see um, from his power from what has been made that there must be a, a creator that has made it all. Secondly, you have the conscience. This is Romans chapter 2. So the conscience, that everybody has this innate sense of, of right and wrong that's telling them when things that they ought to do and things that they shouldn't do. And when they go astray from that, something within their heart or mind is saying, ah, this isn't the way you want to go. And part of the way that we can demonstrate that is for folks who don't have that conscience, we have names for them. They're called sociopaths, right? <laughs> Um, so everybody has that sense of right and wrong. It's not perfect, right? It's, it's fuzzy. It's like a Van Gogh painting. It's more impressionistic, but it's there, um, which points to, again, um, it's not going to get you all the way to the gospel, but that points to a larger source of, of right and wrong. Who's providing that? So creation, conscience, and then the, the third one is cravings, okay? Um, C.S. Lewis really hits on this in his essay, The Weight of Glory. He says, just because I'm hungry doesn't mean that I'm going to find bread. But the fact that I'm hungry tells me that I'm the kind of creature that was made to be filled with food, that that's going to satisfy me. Similarly, he says, if we have hearts that are longing for something more, if we are desiring things that it seems like this world cannot satisfy, it doesn't tell me that I'm going to find it in this creation, but it does tell me that maybe I'm made for something more. See, um, So a good... Um, text to go along with that is Ecclesiastes 3, where it says that God has set eternity in the heart of man. He's placed that within the heart of every human being, that longing for things to be made right, for things to be, to be made whole. So that's just a, a simple nutshell way to think about how, how we see God present, even if you're not ready yet to, to go to the scripture whole hog. All right. So this is the, the reason that, for the hope that is in us. And as, um, throughout this uh, study, we'll be giving, filling that out more and more, that reason for the hope and what that hope looks like. Secondly, I want to say that hopelessness is born of helplessness. Hopelessness is born of helplessness. When people feel as though there is no help, that they are just stuck and nothing and no one is going to come to rescue them, uh, then hopelessness inevitably ensues. Think what kind of events cause people to feel this way? I mean, you could point to any number of things just in current events over the last few years where people have felt hopeless because they feel helpless. It's outside of their control, and it seems like it's outside of anybody's control. Um, Ephesians 2 says that those who are without God are without hope in the world. And so we recognize that God is our help and our deliverer, and because of that, we're able to have hope in the midst of seemingly hopeless and helpless 
circumstances. I think this goes to Sally's point. If knowing where somebody's at in terms of having these conversations, um, if someone has been experiencing a sense of, of helplessness, whether it be because of personal health issues or the health issues of, of somebody else that they love and care for, or maybe it's because of um, employment and career-related sorts of things, maybe it's just larger cultural trends, whatever it might be, when someone's feeling helpless, they often will feel hopeless. And it's a natural opportunity in place for us to be able to bring the balm of Gilead, says in Jeremiah, that hope that we have of the gospel. Um, I'm going to skip number, numbers three and four because we're going to come back to these. Um, if, but just for those of you who need to fill in blanks or else you're not going to be able to sleep tonight. Uh, number three, God's intent is for the renewal, not the replacement of the world. Dr. Wright uh, touched on that in this lesson. We'll talk a lot more about that in subsequent ones. Then number four, our prayer is for God's kingdom to invade enemy-occupied territory. Uh, this is um, a, a tougher one to swallow because we don't like to think about Satan having much power. But Jesus himself speaks of Satan as the prince of this world. Paul calls him the prince of the power of the air. Jesus says, now is the ruler of this world cast out. So he has the victory, and it's not as though Jesus and Satan are on equal footing by any means. But in this present fallen world of sin, Satan still is able to throw his weight around a fair bit. It's as though we are in enemy-occupied territory. This, again, is a, a chapter from C.S. Lewis in Mere Christianity. But what the gospel is now is Jesus dive-bombing into that enemy-occupied territory and liberating the captives from the inside out. See? Uh, it's a powerful, powerful uh, statement of the, of the gospel. Then fifth and finally, really the, the theme of this video in today's lesson, the church is a people of hope. The church is a people of hope. And uh, I, I meant to, to grab it, but in fact, the mission statement for our Michigan district of the LCMS is, uh, this is the, the line. I don't remember it word for word. Fortunately, President Meyer's not here today. Uh, but uh, it's something like a people, of, a people of hope, or the people of hope vigorously making known the good news of Jesus to the world, something like that. We're people of hope. That's our fundamental posture and outlook and attitude. You know, for the world to say, those Christians... They believe all kinds of goofy stuff. I'm not sure I can really go along with them, but I will say this, they are people of hope. I could take that. I could handle that. It seems like more often than not, though, oh, the church, what a downer, right? You know, we're trying to bring hope to the world, and Christians are the ones who keep saying, oh, there's no, there's no hope. And that should not be the, the message, the attitude that we project instead. But rather, as we share God's heart for our neighbors and in our community, we are people of hope, exhibiting and exuding hope in our attitude, but also in our actions. The things that we're doing, saying, you know what? We have a hope for a kingdom that is yet to come, yes. But especially as Dr. Wright's going to show more and more through this study, it's a, a hope that impinges on this world as well, and on this life, the way that we live. Because we have hope, we're able to give ourselves away. Because we have hope, we're able to sacrifice for the sake of others. Because we have hope, we don't need to cling to our things, but instead are able to freely give to others. Because we have hope, we don't just look out for ourselves, but we look out for our neighbors as well, because we are a people of hope. That's the big message from today. 
And uh, next week, we'll go further into the, the content of our Christian hope uh, with the help of Bishop Wright. If uh, you're able to pick up a copy of the book, um, you can read chapters 3 and 4 for next week, or if you happen to have a copy of it already, chapters 3 and 4. But I'll look forward to continuing the conversation with you then. Thanks for being here. God be with you.